gear up because today we are tackling the seventh commandment. And if, in case you're not familiar, that one is about not committing adultery. And so uh, I just want to say at the beginning of the service that we are talking about relationships. We are talking about marriage today. We're going to be talking about sexuality today. And so if you've got young kids that you are not ready for them to be exposed to that, I don't tell you how to parent. Uh, So if you want to take them to our kids' ministry, put in some headphones for them. Or if you're online, maybe you want to put in some headphones too. But I just want you to know that that's where we're going today because that's where we are in the series. And so let's dive in to this commandment. I'm going to open with... A couple stories. I I want us to feel the weight today of of this issue that is surrounding, that is plaguing our culture. In fact, I've been calling it for a while the pandemic before the pandemic. And so here's a couple stories to get us acclimated today to a pretty heavy subject. Story number one. She felt robbed. She was 30. She was single. And in most ways, she was pretty content, except for one area of her life. She couldn't understand why God would design her to be a sexual being with strong sexual desires and then forbid her to participate in and enjoy sex. She'd always been serious about her faith and had tried to live it practically, but this sex thing was about to push her over the edge. More and more, God seemed like a harsh judge rather than someone who loved her and had her best interests in mind. It left her depressed and confused. Sharon knew that her son was messing around in sex, but she couldn't get him to talk about it or admit it. She tried getting into his computer, but didn't know his password. At times, he would make an off-color comment or tell a joke with highly sexual overtones, and every time, Sharon's heart would just sink. They had tried to prepare him for a life in a world that was broken, But changes came so hard and so fast. And Sharon felt like she was living in a world she herself no longer understood. It got so that Sharon hated sex, hated that God created it, hated that her 16-year-old had already had strong sexual desires and was walking forward in them. She hated that sex was everywhere, that talk was everywhere. She felt helpless and powerless. She thought she was losing her son. And there was nothing she could do. She was 14, and she liked being sexy. She didn't want her mom to know, so she would leave for school in an outfit that they approved, but she would have a cooler outfit in her backpack that she would later change into. And for her, a cool outfit was one that was designed to reveal more rather than to cover up. She longed to be popular, to be noticed. And being popular meant lots of Facebook and Instagram likes. And the way you get likes is to be provocative. Her selfies became increasingly sexual. She never posted anything nude, but the image she was projecting was one with a lot of sexual overtones. Her parents didn't have a clue. And if they had, they would have gone ballistic and been heartbroken at the same time. But she was 14, and sex is what drove her world. He drove home that night with a heavy heart, The story he had already heard too many times, he had heard again today. He was depressed from pastoring people he couldn't seem to help. That day in his office, he had talked with yet another couple whose marriage had been shattered by illicit sex. The wife cried and shed tears of yet another betrayal. The man confessed, but his confession was laden with excuses and the typical minimizing of what he had done to her. And his sin had not only shattered their marriage, but it lost him his job as well. And I wonder today what your story is. 
How has broken sexuality come into your world? Into your family's world? It's a heavy subject today. Not, not super fun, but it's, it's something that we have to talk about. It's something that we are privileged to talk about. I, I, read, I read a statistic years back and it just floored me. 75% of Christian parents have not talked with their kids about sexuality. And yet this is the number one pervasive thing. Another statistic, by age six, um, is when, when kids are first exposed to pornography. And I had professors that argued it's probably even five. We're in a really, really broken world. How do we get here and what do we do about it? In the 20th century, a lot of major changes happened. So ethicist Stanley Grintz says that in the 20th century, we started divorcing sex from theology. We started not talking about this in church, and sexuality became a private matter. It became something that happens between me and my household, and it's not something that we talk about. And it moved from the public square into the private sector. And then with the um, on-rising of technology, more and more sexual choices became uh, possible to where it just fed that kind of secrecy. In fact, uh, in one book, Lisa Wade writes that uh, in, in the book American Hookups, that we should divorce sexuality completely from any kind of commitment, any kind of accountability. Liberating sexuality, you might have heard of the, the sexual revolution, this no strings attached, let's just let everyone do what they want to do. Uh, the no-fault divorce laws came around in the 70s. It, it, it all started becoming a private matter. It all started becoming something we don't talk about, and that's none of your business. One quote by John Updike in his book, Couple, says it this way. Welcome to the post-pill paradise. But it's not a paradise. You don't even have to look beyond the church. You can look in our media and you can see that this no-strings-attached kind of mentality is doing damage. In fact, a lot of people are struggling more than ever, it seems, with sexuality. With uh, porn sites being 26 million of them, the highest-grossing industry, and they're constantly bombarding our culture. And, and just in case you're wondering, well, my, my kids and my family, we're not going towards sex. We're living in a world where sex is going after your kids. You don't have to go looking for it. It is coming to look after you. And that leads us today to our text, which, by the way, applies to every single one of us, whether you are single, married, widowed, divorced, or any other stage of relationship, because this text today is all about preserving and protecting the reputation of relationships that God has demanded. Exodus 20, 14, I'm going to walk you through three sections of this passage. I want to talk about this rule, so what is this rule all about? And then I really want to talk about what this rule is really about, right? So there's the rule, don't commit adultery, and then there's the root to the rule that we're going to jump into, and then I want to lead us to what do we do with this? What's the remedy to this broken world? What is our responsibility when it comes to this topic that is uncomfortable and that is often not discussed but yet is extremely prevalent? How do we remedy this situation? The rule, the root, the remedy. Y'all tracking with me? Take some notes. Here we go. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Here's your verse for you, and uh, I have it up in Hebrew, I think. Uh, it's two words, very simple, and it's lo tanav. Two single words in Hebrew. Um, there it is on the screen. If you're having a hard time reading it, uh, it's because you've got to read it right to left. Does that help you at all? I'll be honest, it doesn't help me. I hate Hebrew. All the vowels are underneath it. It's just a mess. Doesn't that just look terrible? The stuff they make us do to seminary students. Now look. I'm not trying to impress you with my Hebrew vocabulary today. Uh, I don't like Hebrew. 
But I am in trying to impress upon you one very important thing. That this is a very, 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 very old rule. An ancient rule written to an ancient people in the ancient Middle Near East. And it's written a long time ago for a culture that's not the culture today. And so to understand this rule, to understand what's going on, we have to put ourselves in the mindset of the original audience. And to do that, I'm going to give you an illustration of what I call the iceberg principle. The Ten Commandments, they're the tip of the iceberg. They're the thing that we know about, well, that we should know about, and unfortunately a lot of our culture is losing. But they're the tip of it. They're the, they're the thing that you see. They're kind of like the warning signs. Uh, they're the principles of the kingdom. The Ten Commandments are really the, the surface part that governs the rest of the body. But underneath that little part that you see of the iceberg is this huge body of biblical law codes. The Mosaic law codes, Levitical law systems, sacrificial systems. There's a huge body of works. So what I'm saying is that to understand this law, this, these two little words, we have to understand the book of Numbers. We have to understand the book of Leviticus. We have to understand the book of Deuteronomy. We have to look at all the legal material to understand how the principle of the kingdom is played out in this ancient Near Eastern culture. Now, I know that sounds really nerdy, and so I'm going to spare you, and we're not going to jump into all of those texts. That's what I got to do all week. I was reading fun legal law codes. But I'm going to summarize two important things that I found about this law. Two important things that I think reveals to us what this rule is all about. Number one, this rule is all about others. God is not taking you He's not asking you to take or not asking you to take something away from you. He's not doing this. He's not trying to remove something from your life. Rather, he's asking you not to take away something from someone else. Let me read that again. God is not taking away from you. Rather, he is asking you not to take away from someone else. Bruce Walke, he's an amazing theologian. He's uh, just brilliant, just a genius. And he says it this way. The Ten Commandments are not something that we fight for our own rights. They're not something that we, like good Americans, go and say, we got to get the Ten Commandments for myself. They're not our rights. The Ten Commandments are rights that we give to others. So last week we talked about a, a murder. And so whenever I'm not murdering someone, at the base of what I'm doing is I'm giving somebody else the right to life. Do you understand this? These are not my rights. These are others' rights. And, and, and what's interesting, I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole, but Jesus gives up every single one of these rights for us. Anyways, these are rights that I give to, to others. They're not about us. They're about the value that God says other people are due. And so whenever we say don't commit adultery, it's this failure to see the values of other people. It's, it's saying I'm giving you the decency to have the right to a home, the right to a family. And even if you're not married, right, it's, it's me treating other people in a way that I'm giving them the right to have their best relationship, a relationship that lasts. I'm giving you your right to be human the way God designed it. So underneath this law is whenever I start breaking it, I start breaking down something essentially human. The second point I want to bring out, and this one has kind of two parts to it I need to, to help you understand, but this rule, this law, shows us that God values marriage and he guards it by demanding commitment. I'm going to break this down. God values marriage. And whenever I break this law, to break this law is for me to go and to pull somebody out of something that God values. Um, there's a couple stories and a couple other things in the law codes that I was mentioning earlier where you get this concept of taking something good and mixing it with something bad. So there's this Hebrew idea, a very ancient idea of you take some, some milk and you mix it with muddy water. I don't know why, it's just what they were talking about. It's mixing something pure with something impure. The, the word is taking something that is sacred and it's mixing it with something not sacred. 
I was going to bring up a, a uh, bottle of root beer. I love root beer. It's one of my favorite drinks. And I was going to, like, pour ketchup or something in it, like, really gross, and just ruin the root beer. Did someone say, oh, you're my people? Uh, he, look, I, I was about to go to the refrigerator this morning and grab one of my bottles of root beer, and I was like, I don't want to ruin this bottle of root beer. And then I had this thought, oh, I don't want to ruin this bottle of root beer, but how many times in my life have I ruined someone else's relationship? Oh, do you see it? Do you see what's behind this word of adulterating? I'm taking something good and I'm mixing something bad into it. I'm taking something that was meant to be good and I'm I'm, I'm misusing it. And what this means is that at the heart of humanity, deeply woven into the fabric of our very design, is this reality that relationships, the love we share between one another and through one another, is sacred. And for me to seduce somebody is to pull them out of sacred space. Ooh. For me to, for me to, 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 to hint at this, at this rule, for me to hint at breaking this rule is for me to say, I'm treating you as an object for me. And our culture is, is obsessed with objectifying people. Our culture is obsessed with taking people and treating them as streetwalkers, using them for our own gratification. And this law says you cannot do that because you violate something deeply, deeply human. I'm hoping you're starting to understand from this law that this this command is for all of us because as Christians, as people who are in God's design, we should be people who fight for this. God values marriage. It's his idea. Uh, One author says that we are not living in a culture that is sexually oriented. We're living in a culture that is sexually disoriented. Did you catch that? We're not living in a culture that is oriented and hyper-focused on sex. We're actually missing the point. We don't understand what it is. We don't understand how important it is. We don't understand the damage that whenever we start playing with this, that it does to people, that it does to the fabric of humans. We're disorienting ourselves. This is why it is such a big deal. This is why the church must talk about it. This is why you must talk about it in your families, in your homes. And this is why we must be engaged in the culture. But all of a sudden, it seems like the church has gone really silent in the past few years on this issue. And this law given to the ancient people still applies to us today by saying we've got to talk about it. That this is something extremely sacred. This is something extremely valuable to God. I think I have a quote by Christopher Christopher West. I don't know if they can find it. I'm kind of out of order. But Christopher West says it this way. If you want to see what is most valued, what's most sacred in this world, you need to look at what the world most violently profanes. If I want to understand what it's at the heart of what God says, I have to see what is most violently profaned. And this is most violently profaned. And we've got to be advocates. And we've got the message. We've got the gospel. We've got the good news. We are the only ones that can fix this problem. That is the rule. Let's move into the root of the rule. So if you're tracking with me, that's what the, that's what the law says. That's as good of Hebrew. That's as good as I can of trying to bring you into the ancient culture and give you something new. But now I want to get to the heart of it, literally. Matthew 5.27, Jesus is giving a sermon on this rule, a much better sermon than I'm giving right now, but it's great, and he says this, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who has looked at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I want you to catch this. This passage tells us that we do not have a horizontal problem. That our problem isn't the way that person is dressing or not dressing. Our problem is not the media. That problem is not that commercial that comes on. That problem is not the internet or social media or Snapchat. Our problem is not horizontal. 
Our problem is not that home wrecker. Jesus says the real heart of the problem is vertical. Are you, are you catching this? That the root of this law is lust, and the root of lust is our wandering heart. It starts in the heart. It starts in the heart. And if you ever try to, to tackle this issue in your own life or in your family's lives or in your friends' lives or in your parents' lives, if you ever want to address this issue and you go to horizontal means, you're going to fail and you're going to be disappointed time and time again because you're going to be missing the issue that this is all about the heart. It starts in the heart. Uh, James 2.10 used to bug me. It's this verse where James is saying if you break one of the commandments, you've broken them all. And I'm, I'm a nerd, and so I'm like, that, doesn't, that is not good math. You can't break. How, how in the world if I covet, am I equal to, how am I killing somebody? I didn't kill anybody, right? But Paul says it too. Paul says, I got through all of the nine commandments, and then I got to that last one, and I was guilty of breaking them all. He calls himself the chief of sinners? My goodness, what is going on in this verse? What is James 2.10 about? Let me tell you. The, the, the Ten Commandments, these principles are all about one really major principle. And you've already, you've already heard it. Week one, seven weeks ago, you shall have no other gods before me. You, you, you see the connection there? That whenever I am looking at God, and he is the only person in my life that I am deriving satisfaction and security and significance from, whenever he is my all in all, whenever he is the one that I truly turn to and fully knows me and fully loves me, then I don't need to go wander off into someone else's home. I don't need to go take matters into my own hand. I don't need to go find an idol. I don't need to work as if there's no tomorrow because I know who holds my future. I know who holds me. I know who's there for me. And if I truly believe that, then I don't have to go looking. Are you getting this? And so Paul says, if I covet, if I, if I want something that my neighbor has and it's not mine, then I'm, I'm wanting something from that item. I'm wanting that item to, to be used for me, for my own interest, because I really don't trust God. And what we've done is we've turned the creation into the creator. And we worship things. And God all along is saying, what have I ever done to you? It starts in the heart. But there's a, another fact to this. Uh, I was reading a book this week, and... Uh, Paul David Tripp writes this, this statement that just was just incredible, and I want to read it to you. He says, you need to face the fact that your body will wander where your heart has already gone. It starts in the heart, but it will end in the body. If I just work on biology, physiology, sociology, and I work on all of these cultural issues, and I don't get to the heart, then I'm just treating symptoms. I'm never getting to the core of the virus. Does that communicate to you? If I don't get to the heart, then I'm never going to make it. I read another story. I'm not going to read it for you, but it, it's a story of a, uh, of a, of a manager of a, of a business team, a high-up high CEO. And the story walks through how he began to have issues with his wife at home. Nothing big, just their good morning kisses didn't feel like they used to feel. And when he went to work... There was another lady there who asked him how he was doing one day. And he said, not, not too great, but I'm okay. And then the next day, he happened to sit down and had lunch with her. Harmless. And then from there, they started having more lunches together. And he told himself that he's just doing it to build morale of the company, that the CEO should be sitting in the, in the dining room with everybody else. But he found slowly that he got excited whenever he woke up to go to work with her. And then they had these moments where they would be in meetings and he would stand a little bit closer and their hands would touch and he'd feel a spark that he hadn't felt in years. 
and then they would have more meetings, and, and, and soon and sooner later, they have their first kiss in the parking garage. And it wasn't long before they had a hotel room. But I want you to hear that the story of this man began back with the heart. It, it, it's a heart issue that we have to deal with. And if we can't find that heart issue, we're never going to tackle this. The rule, don't commit adultery. Don't abuse something that God has said is sacred. Don't take life. Don't take something that is so valuable and profane it. The root behind the rule is it's a heart problem, that we all are doing this because we're wandering. So what's the remedy? How do we fix this? How do we apply this? And I'll be really honest with you. You already know the answer. I've already said it. The battleground is for our hearts. And that's exactly what God's after. And we must learn to trust God. We must learn to look at God and understand that he is the only one that can satisfy. Now, I know this because I've heard it a million times, so I know you've heard it quite a bit. Um, trust in God. Right? Um, what, what else can I say here? Nothing else. That is it. It's that simple. If you want to fix the problem in our world, you have to trust in God. But I'm going to give you a quote uh, that I've probably stolen because literally every pastor has said it, so I don't know which one told it to me first, but I've said it a million times. Until you apply something, you don't know something. Until it's real in your life, until you walk out what it means to daily meet with your Savior and say, God, I'm here for you and you are here for me and, and you are all I need. Until you learn what that looks like, until you practice that, until this becomes a reality in your life, until you've, you've met God, and learn that he is enough for you, right, then you don't really fully understand. And so I say this all the time, um, that the Christian life is just an ever-deepening relationship of trust. It's me learning to trust God with this and with that. And every day I give him a little bit more. Every day I find areas where I'm not trusting, and I keep moving forward. We have to learn to trust God. And that's all you need. You don't need a new strategy. You don't need a self-help book. My wife's a counselor. I'd love for you to go visit her, get her some money, but you don't even need counselors. It's a heart problem. All those things are extremely helpful. All those things are needed, but they're not the primary issue. We have to get to the heart. And God doesn't promise us a life free from struggle. He doesn't promise us that we'll not have to suffer. He doesn't promise us that we'll never face temptation, but he does promise us that in all of these things, he is with us, he is in us, and he is for us. And until you experience God like this, until the world experiences God like this, our strategies to cope with our broken sexuality will just leave us more broken until God stirs your heart and you realize that he is what you needed all along. You will be ensnared with lust and your heart will wander. And you'll be guilty of breaking all the commandments. So what do we do? Where does, where does the, the grace come in? I want to leave you as best I can with trying to get you to see what God can truly do for us. Here's seven principles. Um, once again, replying, or, uh, getting back to uh, David Tripp's book, Broken Sexuality. Um, he gives ten principles throughout the book. I kind of adapted them and moved them around. But I want to I end with this and give you some real practical steps of what you can do moving forward. How we, can, how we can protect sexuality, how we can move forward in our lives today. Number one, you don't have to be ashamed about your sexuality. You don't have to act like you don't have these desires, that you don't have uh, this passion, that you don't have biology. You don't have to pretend like that's just not something in my life because it is deeply fundamental in all of our lives. The rule says it. The law is, is addressing this fact that God designed it and it was a good thing. But it is a reality. It means you don't have to not talk about it. It doesn't mean you don't have to just shove those feelings aside and just feel this weight because it's a good thing. Number two goes right along with this. You don't have to deny that you're broken, that you're a sinner. 
You see, sometimes we say, I have all these desires, and I don't know what to do with them. And then, then we say, well, if anybody ever founds out that I'm like this, then they're just not going to love me. They're not going to like me. Or they don't understand my brokenness, or they won't understand what I'm going through. You don't have to. The gospel frees you to be open. And only through the gospel does it free you to be open truly about what you are, because I'm not deriving my significance, my security. I'm not de- deriving my self-worth from what you think about me and my brokenness. Because God looks at me in my brokenness says, I know all of your brokenness and I fully love you. No other human being can do this for you. No other person, not even my wife, can know me fully and love me fully. And if I demand that of her or anybody else, I'm going to be messed up. I'm going to be sorrowly disappointed. I'm going to be struggling. So God gives us the freedom to say, you can admit that you're broken. You can admit that he gave it to you, admit you're broken. Number three, you don't have to deny the brokenness of culture. I feel like for some reason we we feel like we can't talk about it because we're going to hurt people's feelings. If this is really God's idea and God made the design for marriage and it's something that's so sacred and valuable, then we should be able to talk about it. And we should be able to look at culture and say, that's not right. That is hurtful. That is harmful. I can look at the world around me and I should be angry. I wish I could tell you how many students have come up to me and have had terrible things happen to them. And I look at them all and I say, that is not right. And it should hurt us. And it should empower us to say, we've got to step up. We've got to be people who advocate for right relationships. You see, it's not a cowering behind what someone thinks or doesn't think about their sexuality. It's stepping up and saying, no, your sexuality is so more important than you could have ever imagined. That your sexuality is so deeply human. It's woven into your fabric. And we are the people, the church is the people who can protect it. The church are the people who can make great relationships. When me and my wife do premarital counseling um, with our Merge and Reengage, we talk about this concept. We want you to have great sex. We want you to have great relationships. And we have the solution because our God is the one who made it. You following Next one, we don't have to hide in guilt and fear. You don't have to read too far in the Bible before you get the story of Adam and his wife and they're, they're cowering from God because they have just sinned. And they're hiding in shame and guilt and fear. They're covering themselves. And God is walking through the garden saying, where are you? And I, I've thought of this story so many times in my life and I, and I just don't understand, but I, but I do it. How can, the, how can someone hide from the most loving person I've ever met? How can someone be afraid of the person who time and time again has done nothing but come to me with love and with grace? God hasn't changed. The Old Testament says that he is slow to anger. He's full of compassion, that he is good, he is gracious, and that even after, after the first human beings in, in this story break this trust in God and, and they turn away from him, He doesn't give them what they deserve. And King David goes out and he has an affair. And Moses and all the patriarchs, and even in the genealogy of Christ, you get prostitutes. And God doesn't come to them and smite them. He doesn't come down to them and zap them. He meets with them. God is for us. God is for you. So why do we run? Why do we hide? Why do do we cower back and push everyone away? Which leads us to our next one. You don't have to question, or sorry, you don't have to fight alone. That, that God says, I'm here for you in this. That I'm going to meet you in that moment in your room. I'm going to meet you in that moment in front of your, your screen. I'm going to meet you in that moment in the hotel room that you just got. I'm going to meet you there, and I'm going to be there for you. And I love you. And once we feel that, 
or we can readjust, we can recalibrate our hearts. We don't have to fight alone too because God gives us people. I told the first service that um, me and my grandmother joke uh, because we talk about sex a lot. And so I don't know if she's watching online or not, but um, hopefully you're not embarrassed by that, Grand. But uh, <laughs> really, there's one day we were talking, she's like, she's like, Dre, we really do talk about sex a lot. And I was like, yeah, I guess so. But listen, I, my grandma loves me. And I love her. We're family. We're there for each other. If I can't talk about it with my own family, then what's wrong with me? And we're family, and if we can't talk about it in the church, if this is a topic that if you're feeling uncomfortable about it right now, I get it, but we're family. Why can't we talk about it? Of all places, we should be the ones to be able to talk about it in the church. We should be the ones that can say, how are you doing? Let's check on. You don't have to be in this alone. You don't have to push back and run from God or run from others. You can bring it out into the light, and you can see that God loves you, and because we're the people of God, we love each other too. Right? Doesn't mean there's not consequences, doesn't mean there's not issues, but we can say, I love you, I'm here for you. Next one, you don't have to question God's love for you. I've hit that one pretty well. Number seven, eight, and nine, you can stop thinking that change is impossible. You can flee from sexual morality. You can remove the stimulus. You can actually make practical steps. Once you, once you get your heart right, then you can start saying, you know what, I can defeat this. The, the president of my seminary, while I was there, he had... Um, he, he didn't have access to any of his passwords, but all of the staff did and his wife did. Anybody could check on his computer anytime. The president of a seminary said, you know what, I can put things in place to block the stimulus. I can put things in place to flee from this. Um, if, you're, if you're addicted to brownies like I am, you don't keep brownie mix in the pantry. Uh, you, you change your environment because whenever you get that moment of temptation, if it's not in your environment, it's not accessible to you and now you don't have that choice. So it's limiting the exposure to choices that you have. You, you can fight through this. You can struggle well. I, I've met with so many people in my life uh, that, that I've journeyed with for quite some time, and, and more often than not, after years of knowing them, they'll come to me and say, hey, I messed up again. I slipped. I did something I shouldn't have done. I experienced broken sexuality. And I love to remind them, yeah, but I knew you back in college. I love to remind them, yeah, I knew you back in high school. Can you see where God's working? Can you see that, yes, this struggle is real, but God is meeting us in this struggle, and you're going to have to fight it. It's not an easy fight. This is not something that we just up and pop out one day and be like, oh, I don't struggle with that anymore. We move forward with it. And the last one, which this leads into it, you can have hope that your struggle will end. In our first service, we sang, I'll fly away. There's coming a day we don't deal with this anymore that we can trust God to return and to restore creation and get us back to this idea of shalom, this idea of soundness and completeness, that God is coming back and he is for us. So we've talked about the rule. At the center of God's heart is this rule. The Ten Commandments written and placed in the Ark of the Covenant, don't commit adultery is what the seventh one says, and it represents God's design for marriage, relationships, and the way we treat people. It represents and encompasses the fabric of our humanity. But the New Testament reminds us that this law is given to show us that our hearts are full of lust and wander, and lust is rooted in our distrust in God. We don't trust God, and thus we seek the next thrill, hoping it will make us feel a sense of significance and security. And we all do this. We all have a heart problem. We all have, in some sense, violated this commandment. And the only way we can ever find a remedy to our sexual brokenness is by turning to God 
realizing he is enough, realizing he is for us, realizing that he fully knows and loves us. And this allows us to accept his design, struggle well, and grow deeper in our love for God and others. One last story. There was a man and a woman who'd been married for many years. Their marriage was average. It wasn't great. Intimacy was not great, partially because this woman had a deep and dark secret. She had sustained an affair. She had since repented of it, and she had cut it off. And it had been several years had gone by, and she had this nagging sense that she needed to tell her husband about it. So one day she decided that she couldn't hide it anymore. She couldn't stand it. She confessed to him, so scared that he would leave her. And he was devastated. He got up and he quietly left. He walked out. She thought she might never see him again, wondering how to explain this to her kids, what had happened to their daddy. He came back several hours later. He didn't say a word. He was carrying a bag and he took her back to the bedroom completely undressed her. Then he took out a beautiful satin nightgown, pure white, that he had just purchased. He put it on her and said, I choose to see you as Jesus sees you. Can we be people who choose to see ourselves as Jesus sees us? Can we be people who choose to see our our families as Jesus sees them? Can we be people who chooses to see the world the way that Jesus sees them and get engaged because God has given us his law He's shown us the heart behind the law, but he has given us the remedy in his son. And we have that remedy to share. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for reminding us that we are broken, for showing us how corrupt we are. God, through your law, it's such a grace that we can see how far we've fallen. God, and and you showed up on the scene and it reminded us, too, that the problem was far bigger than we could have ever imagined, God, that this problem of broken sexuality and adultery is impacting so much of our lives, and it's so deep. But yet you chose to die for us. You chose to take the punishment, the guilt, the shame, everything that we deserved, and you bore it upon yourself to give us life. So, God, may we today as the church take this life, share this life, and spread this life to a world that is dying and is in need. May we apply it to our own hearts and the hearts of those around us. And it's all in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us online. We hope today's experience encouraged and challenged you. At Champion Forest, we are passionate about all kinds of people coming to know God, to grow in their relationship with Him and others, and then to go out and make a difference in the world. We would love the opportunity to talk and pray with you. To connect with us, just go to championforce.org slash connect. And hey, of course, we can't wait to welcome you on campus, in person, on one of our locations. We'll see you soon.